This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Philip Marlowe is a fictional character created by Raymond Chandler. Marlowe first appeared under the name in The Big Sleep, published in 1939. Chandler's early short stories, published in pulp magazines like Black Mask and Dime Detective, featured similar characters. Now, underneath the wisecracking, hard-drinking, tough private eye, Marlowe is quietly contemplative and philosophical. He enjoys chess and poetry. And while he's not afraid to risk physical harm, he doesn't dish out violence merely to settle scores. Morally upright, he is not fooled by the genre's usual femme fatales as opposed by other detectives of that era. And some of these short stories were later combined and expanded into novels featuring Marlowe, a process that Chandler called cannibalizing, but is more commonly known in publishing as a fix-up. Well, tonight, the ominous title of the show is The Iron Coffin. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum, the refreshing, delicious treat that gives you chewing enjoyment, presents for your listening enjoyment Raymond Chandler's most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe. The makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum are glad to bring you tonight's exciting story, The Iron Coffin. I wouldn't touch your proposition with someone else's ten-foot pole. Period. Furthermore, I... Hello? Would you connect me with Mr. Marlowe, please? Philip Marlowe, the private investigator. This is Philip Marlowe. Oh, I'm so glad I caught you. Mr. Marlowe, you've been very highly recommended to me by a very dear friend, and I want to employ your services for a case. All right, who are you? I'm Catherine Newbold. Uh-huh. It's about my daughter, Irene, or uh, more exactly, about her fiancé. I want you to find him for me. He's 26, dark complexioned, about 5 feet 10, and... Oh, just a minute, Mrs. Newbold. It's a little early for descriptions. What's the nature of his disappearance? Mr. Marlowe. Yeah? I'm afraid I, I just can't explain over the phone. I'm at the boy's place now. 
Would you come over here? It's four two two oh and a half bronze. Forty two twenty and a half, huh? You see, Bennett is lost, and Irene's gone to help him, and she may get lost too. Well, well how do you mean that, Mrs. Dubois? Lost where? Back somewhere in the sixteenth century. <laughs> After she hung up, I spent a few minutes trying to decide if I should take along my 38 or a butterfly net. But in spite of what I thought she'd said about the 16th century, I was convinced that Mrs. Newbold was a genuinely worried woman. I'd sold myself on that by the time I hit Bronson Avenue. When I finally found number 4220 and a half, I began to unsell myself fast. Said 4220 and a half was a sagging second floor of a weed-ridden tile and stucco heap on the alley. Back of a dead delicatessen. The windows were heavily shuttered behind rusty iron grills, and the heavy door was set at the top of a narrow flight of unreliable wooden stairs. Mr. Marlowe? I'm Mrs. Newbold. Hello. <laughs> the looks of this place on the outside, I, uh... Holy smoke. It's rather bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, to say the very least. So these are Bennett Virago's rooms. He's a student. Of what? Alchemy? <laughs> His place is a museum. Everything in here must date back to the... Yes, to the 16th century. That's what you said, yeah. That's what I meant. Mr. Marlowe, two years ago when my daughter met Bennett, he was a nice, normal boy with a great enthusiasm for history. Uh He's brilliant. I liked him, and Irene, of course, fell madly in love with him. But then... Then what, Mrs. Newell? Then it began to change... He was working awfully hard toward his doctor's degree when suddenly he... He seemed to hit a snag. How do you mean? Well, he became obsessed with a particular period in history. Spanish history. (laughs) Well, that's not so unusual. That's how guys become specialists. Oh, but it's more than that. His interest was much more than scholarly. It became a morbid fascination. Oh? Look at these relics, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah. At first, Bennett only studied them. But in the last year, he began to live with these things exclusively. More and more until... Until he left a month ago. And now... Well, I... I just don't know. You know, my guess is the boy needs a psychiatrist, not a private detective. Where's he now? Well, I'm not sure, but... This morning, a note came from Irene. It was mailed in Santa Barbara two days ago. The day she left. She might be with him. Yeah, but you said you had an idea where they might be. I do. See this book? Yeah. It's a castle. Constructed in the year 1540 by Peter the Cruel of Lerma, near the present city of Valdemoro. Seized in 1562 after a violent struggle with the Count of Castile, Dominique Virago. Yes. And look here. I found this old newspaper clipping in that book there. Uh It's about that very castle. It says it was... Torn down in 1887 by an eccentric millionaire bachelor and rebuilt stone for stone on an isolated part of the California coast known as Point Estero. The man who spent his entire fortune on this single project was Philip Virago. For Pete's sake. And that's where they are. They must be. Well, considering what we started with, that makes sense. I looked it up, Mr. Marlowe. Point Estero is just above Morro Bay, about 200 miles north of here... Will you go up there and and find out what's wrong? Uh, I'm awfully worried. I 
I told her the transplanted castles from Spain were not exactly my cup of tequila. But between the check she handed me and the look in her eyes, I, I figured a drive along the beach might do me good. Well, I made Santa Barbara by 4, and by 6.30 I was watching the surly Pacific surf hurl itself at a huge granite lump called Morro Rock. The farther north I got, the manner the ocean became. A hulking bank of solid black clouds offshore made a hollow mockery out of daylight savings time. And 20 miles beyond Morro Bay, I had to turn out my lights. By rough calculation, the castle was another 10. When 11.7 had turned up on the speedometer without so much as a single battlement in view... I decided to turn my lights back on again and stop for some local advice. My first chance was a combination motor court, restaurant, and mobile gas station. Labeled Summit Light, California. L. Chester Poindexter Pop. Howdy, friend. Bad night to be out on the road, huh? What do you have? Yeah, a cup of coffee. Okay. Driving on up north? No. Now, as a matter of fact, I'm looking for that old Spanish castle that's along this coast somewhere. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Got any idea how I can get there? You got business here? Yeah, I might have. Why? Just wanted. Mm -hmm. Not a good place, mister. Folks in these parts like to forget it's here. Oh? (sighs) What's wrong with it? Nothing, maybe. Then again, well, it was built 60 years ago by a madman, mister. Brought it over here from Spain, complete, even to the furniture. Mm, Sorry. They say it belonged to his ancestors, and he brought them, too, every one of their bodies. Their coffins are down there under that castle right now. Thirteen of them. How do you know? I talked to an old-timer once who helped put that place together. Seven men died on that job, and you know what he told me? One of them coffins is iron, and it's eight feet long. (sighs) You made a great fullback here. Fill it up again, will you? It ain't funny. They say his name was Peter the Crew. Now, look, Chester, you're not lathering yourself up into a ghost story for tourists, are you? You asked me, and I'm telling you. All I asked you was how to get there. You see that light out there? Hmm? Across the bay and past the breakwater? Wait till you come around again. There, see it? Yes. That's up on the summit of Point Estero. Well, the castle's just a mile past that. There's not much of a road in, but you can make it. Okay, thanks. It's right down next to the water. In a nasty, jagged little cove. Altogether, it's three miles from here. Much obliged. There's something else you might keep in mind. Like I said, I I don't hold with ghosts. But I know for a fact them coffins are sealed in a crypt under that castle. But they don't stay put. They get thrown around. Folks have heard them thumping. Good night, friend. Highway dropped down close to the quiet bay, which was sheltered by the breakwater. And a hundred yards out, a white sailboat, its mast pointing straight up at the stars. It made a strange contrast to the pounding surf a mile beyond, where I found the turnoff to the castle. It beat a year's depreciation out of my car in ten minutes. But finally, at the top of a small rise, I saw it the Spanish castle. It was a grim, gray mess of crooked walls and twisted towers that crouched on the shore like something that had crawled up from the bottom of the sea. When I pulled to a stop in front of the main gate, I saw there were lights in one of the lower rooms. I started in, and then I saw something else. A girl running down the path toward me. You! You, wait! Please, wait! Oh, you've got to help me. Somebody's going to be killed. Killed? In there, in the castle? Yes. 
Oh, hurry, please. All right, come on. Thank heaven I saw your headlights. I'm glad I found you, Miss Newbold. How did you know? I guessed right. What do you mean? And your mother was pretty sure I'd find you here. I'm private detective Philip Marlowe. Oh. What's this about somebody being killed? It's Bennett. He's almost out of his mind, Mr. Marlowe. He's gone down to the crypt under the castle. I tried to stop him, but I couldn't. He killed down there, just like the others. Like what others, Irene? All the other Viragos, all his ancestors. Peter the Cruel will kill him. Oh, now, just a minute. Come on. I must sound crazy, too. Maybe I am. This horrible oh, place. Hey, baby, baby, take it easy. This is the age of rocket planes and bebop, remember? Not in here. Here is the 16th century. Oh, settle down. Tell me what's really going on. I am. Day before yesterday, I, I was just as skeptical as you are. That's why I came here. But now, Mr. Marlowe Bennett Virago is fighting a battle that's been going on for 400 years. A battle with a monster called Peter the Cruel. The one in the oversized iron coffin downstairs? Yes. Mm. Come on, baby, show me. What I could see in the light of the four candles in the holder I picked up I didn't like. She led me first on a long flight of stairs. Then through a maze of ponderous arched pillars that made the catacombs seem cozy by comparison. Finally, we stopped in front of a heavy door with an iron ring in it. I hauled it open and almost fell in. We were at the top of a deep circular room, carved from solid bedrock. Stairs that must have been designed by a reckless mountain goat followed the curving wall down to the bottom. And there, in the light of a torch stuck in a bracket, a man was working frantically over a big trap door set in the center of the floor. It was Bennett Farrago. I told Irene to go back upstairs and wait, and then I started down. Philip Marlowe. I'm a friend of Irene. She told me I'd find you down here. Get out of here. I refuse to be responsible. I'll be responsible for me, fella. I'm used to it. Are you sure you can't use some help? You look pretty tired. I'm exhausted. And I'm not going to stop until I've settled this business once and for all. And I won't tolerate any interference. Do you understand? No. Interference in what? I'm going to spend the night in the crypt under this door. I've got to know the truth. Listen. If you're really Irene's friend... Please take her away into town, that Poindexter's place. She's not safe here. Nobody is. Every document I found verifies it. Verifies what? Mr. Muller, I'll show you. On one condition. Give me your word that once I'm in there and this door is closed, you'll leave here and take Irene with you. Well? Okay, Virago, it's a deal. Show me. All right. Take that crowbar and help me get this open. Okay. Tonight I broke the seals that were put on this door 30 years ago. <clears throat> At that time, the coffins were in three straight rows. And now... I know what I'm going to find. It's happened before. Hey, Buster, this thing is heavy. You'll never open it from the inside by yourself. Servant Ramiro has ears. Quick, drop it with your bar. I got it. Well, Virago. Stay back. Don't move until I get the torch down there. Now... I saw walls slimy with pale moss, a rotten stone floor scarred with deep fissures, and the coffins that had been in three neat rows were scattered in crazy confusion. That wasn't enough. In the middle of it all was the iron one, eight feet long, standing right straight up on end. Now, 
Drago, listen, wait a minute. Maybe you better think this over. You gave me your word. Yeah, but no kid threw those coffins around like that. Now you're beginning to understand. Get out, Marlowe. Get out fast. Heaven only knows what might happen here tonight. the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's exciting story, The Iron Coffin. I kept telling myself that Virago wasn't in any danger, that this was 1950 and spirits from the 16th century didn't stand a, a ghost of a chance against a determined man. But I couldn't quite believe it. And things didn't get any cozier as I watched the man with the obsession descend into the crypt. A candle in his hand, casting a crazy chorus of shadow dancers against the dripping wet walls. After the trapdoor crashed shut, I kept holding on tight to the 20th century. And things that made it tick. And that helped. Until I was back up to the basement level. A moment of your time, please, senor. tangle of gray, black, shaggy hair fell all around a grisly old face that could have scared a Halloween mask. And the rest of them fit from a build that included almost no shoulders, eight long scrawny arms, and an outfit that was medieval. I did not mean to alarm you, senor. Yeah, you couldn't miss. It's uh, so dark in here. You're, you're Ramiro? Gee, Ramiro! I, senor, wait upon the master of this house, even as my father did, and his father before him. Always, senor, Aramiro has been in service in this castle. Always since Peter de Cruel. You mean you came over here from Spain, you were imported with this castle? Si, si, indeed. It had to be that way, senor. None else but Aramiro knows the castle. Every storm, every friction... Every sound in the night. Why, senor, there where you stand, Ramiro stood on that fateful day in the year 1562 when Dominique Verago, the Count of Castile, sentenced Peter de Cruel to his death. Oh, it was an awesome occasion, senor. How bad? The story of that day lives in my mind as though I had been present. I hear and see it all. Hear and see the fantastic spectacle in this very room. The place lighted by flaming torches. The prisoner was Peter de Cruel. His legs bound in heavy chains and weighted with an iron ball. To this day, proclaim the tyrannical rule of the prisoner before me at an end. And I do further proclaim that the prisoner, Peter the Cruel, be hanged, wearing the shackles and weights of a common thief. And when his body is dead, I order it cut down and sealed in an iron coffin, the chains not removed. By right of the royal blood of our fathers, do I allow his remains to be placed in the family crypt below this room. 
stop you here to warn you yes well uh, tell me ramiro your ancestors whose side were they on the counterfeit of the cruel well the ramiro serve only one man senor the master of the house even as i today serve only one man the master of the house mm. good night senor he glared at me for a long moment with sickly yellow eyes and he stepped back and was gone well a few minutes later I found Irene Newbold and told her what had happened at the crypt and a virago's wish that she spend the night at Poindexter's place when I saw her make one valiant try to keep from going to pieces I picked up a coat and bag held her firmly by the arm and walked her fast outside into my car it kept her thinking for a while when we arrived at Poindexter's, I promised to awaken her at dawn for the return trip to the castle. She thanked me and went to her room, and a few minutes later, I went to mine. After three hours of cigarette-filled sleeplessness had gone by, I slipped outside and watched the summit light that winked at me every third second. At I didn't wink back. And the sight of El Chester Poindexter standing at the cliff's edge ahead, looking toward the bay below and the long, wide wash of the full moon, didn't help any. Sure. How do, Mr. Marlowe? Trouble sleeping? Yeah, your local ghost made good. He keeps propping my eyelids open. And you don't feel up to much smart joking either, huh, Mr. Marlowe? Poindexter, I'm worried about Morocco. And you should be... That Peter the Cruel was certainly a powerful party. Oh, nuts to Peter the Cruel. There's another answer. There's got to be. But you said Virago. Yeah, and I meant Virago. Virago in his own mind. He won't even look for another answer. He'll keep fighting ghosts until the boys in the white jackets with court orders call for him. And then there's Irene. And Mr. Marlowe, you were saying... Hey, Poindexter. Look out there. See out there in that boat anchored in the bay? Yeah. That's the same one I saw from the road before, isn't it? The road I took to the castle? Sure. Only sailboat around here. Spring tide certainly has her dip in for moss tonight, huh? Certainly has. Her, me, and a lot of other things, including the fact that our boy who's chasing ghosts is going to be killed by something very real. If we don't get a move on, come on, come on. We're all going to the castle in a big hurry. <laughs> 
sure you're right. I can't believe the answer's that simple. It doesn't matter, Irene. Simple or not, it can still kill. Come on, Point Dexter. We're going to run for it. Every second counts now. You catch up to us, Irene. We're going ahead. Point Dexter followed me as I ran into the castle and down the stone stairs to the basement and along the passageway that led to the spot above the cliff where I'd first met Marimo. We both slammed to a stop at the sight of something I couldn't expect to find this side of the Dark Ages. It was Ramiro again. Only this time, minus his apron and long winter underwear, and plus a head-to-toe black coat of mail with a shiny steel helmet spike on top, tucked underneath his arm. And in one hand, a lantern that swung to and fro with his cackling. In the other, a long sword, vintage lady of the lake. They're fighting down there in the crypt. The Virago, the last of the Viragos, and Peter the Cruel. Peter who is to have his revenge. Get out, <laughs> Come on, point next to we got to get the door open. No, no, stop. Get off. Time is bedded, all right? I don't know yet. Watch that jerk in the fancy dress. If he gets up, yell. Come on, point next to we got to get this door open. Come on. It's coming. Look, the crypt is filled with water, just like you said. Help, help me. Oh, Benny, Benny, thank heaven you're all right. Virago, here. Take my hand. Reach for it. There we are. Couldn't have lasted another minute. The water came through the cracks in the floor. And the coffins. They floated. That's right. They're bumping against the sides of the crypt as the thumping sound you people have heard. Yes. And when the water subsides again, the coffins will be scattered all over. Oh, Bennett, darling, you see, it's no angry spirit. Yes, but... But why the water, Mr. Marlowe, and why... Why does Peter the Cruel's coffin always stand on end upright? Where does the water come from? The sea, the sea. There's an unusually high tide tonight. Uh, spring tide, they call it. Right, Point Dexter? Right. Happens when the sun and the moon are in either direct conjunction or opposition. You see, the castle's so close to the ocean and the crypt's so deep that the water seeps in as the tide rises. Oh, I see. And as for Peter the Cruel, he settles upright because the old boy was buried in his coffin with his bondage chain still wrapped around his feet, according to legend. Mm-hmm. Ask Ramiro there. I'll be glad to tell you all about oh, it. Say, senor, senor, it is more than legend. It is true. True, sir, that no Oh, shut up, I... Ramiro. <laughs> Had enough of you and your stories. Mr. Marlowe, how did you know? I mean... He means, what got you here in time? How did you think of the spring tide, Mr. Marlowe? Well, it was a sailboat anchored in the bay, Irene. You know, when I first saw it, its mast pointed straight up at the stars. When I saw it again, hours later, it was dipped forward sharply because the anchor chain had been pulled tight by the rising tide. Well, that gave me the hunch I needed. The hunch we needed, Mr. Marlowe. <laughs> Thanks a lot, I'm glad to be out of the 16th century, and you know something? What? I think I'll stay out. Well, it was another hour before we left the strange relic of another day. An hour in which everybody found himself thinking of Peter the Cruel's vengeful spirit. Now, well. The tide took care of him. Oh, Marlowe, did you hear that? Uh, no, no. Yeah, well, as I was saying, that's the beauty of reality. Yeah, you can figure everything out. Marlowe, there it is again. Oh, that's nothing. 
It's probably just the wind. Look! That figure up on the ramparts! Figure? Ramparts? Uh, oh. <laughs> Why, that's Ramiro. Uh, or is it? of Philip Marlowe, presented by Wrigley's Spearmint Gum, bring you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and star, Gerald Moore. Philip Marlowe is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levin. Featured in the cast were Irene Tedrow, Lillian Bayer, David Ellis, Jane Novello, Harley Bear, Barney Phillips, and Edgar Barrier. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. invite you to be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says, This time a dying man's last wish led me from a gunman with orders to stop me past a battered corpse in a crumbling mansion to a ruthless redhead playing for keeps. And when it was over, the one in the middle got away with everything except the dying man's last wish. This is Bob Stevenson speaking, and this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for the Bob Hope Show next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for the Bob Hope Show with special guest Chico Marx. Ah, thank you so much. And welcome you all to our fun shop. While we manufacture the laughter, it's captured and sales that we're after. To make you smile, the more worthwhile. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back again for the GOP. Good old president. <laughs> Tonight, I'm just a lull between election returns. You know, there's been so many campaign speeches on the air lately, I turned on my radio last night and it handed me a cigar. <laughs> and what those politicians say about each other, it sounded like they were doing their Christmas wrapping early. <laughs> well, election day is almost over and I'm pretty tired. My uncle ran for office in Eagle Knob, California, and I've been voting all day. <laughs> It doesn't pay, to be honest. I voted 12 times a day, and I only got paid for 10. <laughs> when my uncle got through voting, the ballot box was so stuffed it had to take six bicarbonates of soda. <laughs> my uncle isn't exactly crooked. I'd say he was sort of a pretzel with skin. <laughs> when he was running for office last year, he said he'd do the public good, and when he was elected, he kept his word. <laughs> he did them good. <laughs> you'd like him. He's a great man. He came up from the gutter, and boy, is he homesick. <laughs> He's a very thorough politician. Two hours before the polls opened, he put in his application for a recount of the recount. <laughs> he had so many cigars in his pocket, he looked like a pipe organ. <laughs> 
But I want to take this opportunity to thank the 26 intelligent, honest, right-thinking voters of Eagle Knob who voted for my uncle. The other 2,000 know what they can do. <laughs> but the people are really slow in Eagle Knob. I entered the polling booth there, pulled back the curtain on the voting machine, and what do you think I found? A guy still voting for Hoover. <laughs> Oh, but that's enough of that. Bill, tell the ladies and gentlemen who's elected to entertain the peps and the voters tonight. Well, Bob, we have one of the famous Marx brothers, Chico Marx, and in our usual roundup, Skinny Ennis and his band, the mad professor Jerry Colonna, through the courtesy of Warner Brothers, Six Hits and a Miss, and Bob Hope. Oh, that's Bill Goodman, ladies and gentlemen, the big outdoor man. He went up to his cabin in the woods over the weekend to do a little deer hunting. I came back without a buck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Reminds me of Santa Anita. But boy, I said, there's nothing like getting out in the open. I love to go hunting in the woods. It fills me with something. Buckshot. <laughs> but it's marvelous up there around Bill's cabin. The deers eat right out of your hand. Here in Hollywood, they eat right out of your pocketbook. <laughs> Isn't that a slick line? <laughs> oh, but I said, the first day Goodwin shot of the moose, he came so close, he shot the milk pail right out from under it. <laughs> day out, I came face to face with a bear. It was pretty horrible for both of us. <laughs> it was a very old bear. It didn't have a tooth in its mouth. They were all in my arms. <laughs> Bill shot at the bear 15 times without hitting it. Suddenly, the bear ran in the woods and came out a second later with a large red bullseye over its heart. <laughs> a large red bullseye over its heart. <laughs> <laughs> went a little deeper into the woods and ran across an elephant. The elephant came up to me and said, uh, I've been hiding in here all day. How did we make out in today's election? <laughs> I told him and he went deeper into the woods. You know, um, as Skinny Edison and his band were up there hunting, Skinny's a great hunter, he fired one shot and ran up to Goodman and said, is the guitar player out of the woods? Goodman said, yes. Then Skinny said, really? Then I shot a bear. <laughs> That's a nice cabin you have up there. But did you really like it, Bob? Yes, Bill, except the bed you gave me. Well, when I made it up, I asked you if you wanted one lump or two. <laughs> Bill, that bed was so uncomfortable, even the beaver got out. <laughs> well, anyway, the trip was a success. All except the last day. I fell on a porcupine. Really? Did you, did you get the needles? Well, Bob, I, I have so many needles in me. Every time I eat spaghetti, my stomach knits a sweater. <laughs> Fellas. Hi, Skinny. Say, Skinny, did you ever hunt there? Yeah, but I don't like it. The leaves tickle. <laughs> the leaves tickle? Yeah, but I'm, I'm disappointed in you, Bob. Why, what about Skinny? Well, you know that bread dog you sold me? Yeah. Well, he doesn't sing a note. <laughs> <laughs> what a hunter, Skinny. You couldn't bring down a duck off a meat hook. <laughs> well... Everybody liked you up there, Bob. Really, Bill? Uh-huh. Even the parrot in my cabin. The parrot? Yeah. He woke me up in the middle of the night and said, Is that Bob Hope, the comedian? Mm -hmm. and, and I said, Yes. Yeah. So the parrot laid an egg as big as an ostrich and said, Let me see him top that. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. And now our six tips of the mess are going to sing out Johnny Mercer's version of the musical football player, Jamboree Jones. Take it, talent. <laughs> Oh! 
young Englishman received a letter from his father which read, I hope you take great care of your teeth and that you clean them well every morning and after every meal. But I do insist that you never use any of those sticks or hard substances which always rub away the gums and destroy the varnish of the teeth. And who do you think wrote this letter in 1754? It was none other than the famous Lord Chesterfield. Now fortunately, the sticks and hard cleaning substance he speaks of have completely disappeared from modern American life. But the rest of Lord Chesterfield's advice is as important today as it was nearly 200 years ago. Think how he would have greeted pepsid and toothpaste containing irium. Irium is the cleansing agent found only in pepsidant of all toothpaste. Gently, quickly, effectively, it helps pepsid and toothpaste brush away stubborn surface stains, leaving your teeth gleaming with natural brilliance. And always remember, pepsid and toothpaste containing irium is safe in its action on teeth. Safe for children, safe for adults, because it contains no grit, no drugs, no bleach. Try Pepsodent today and see how effectively it reveals the true beauty of your teeth. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we take great pleasure in presenting one of the foremost comedians of Hollywood, one of the famous Marx brothers whom you saw recently in the great RKO picture room service. Here he is, Chico Marx. Thank you very much. Well, so long, Bob. <laughs> Wait a minute, Chico, Chico, what are you leaving for? When the people applaud, that's enough for me. <laughs> Wait a 
wait a minute, we got to do a show. I know, but I got to go home and learn how to play the piano. Well, can't you learn how to play next week? No, next week I'm giving a concert. <laughs> yeah, well, what about our audience? You've got to do something for them. Okay. Wait a minute, Chico, this is no place to sell ice cream. Why not? We need some good humor around here. <laughs> Besides, Bob, I gotta make it some money. But Chico, you're getting a check for this program. Whose check? My check. <laughs> Look, Chico, what are you gonna do tonight? Well, I think I just stand in the back and hit. <laughs> well, you'll have plenty of company. <laughs> well, goodbye, Bob. I must go home now. <laughs> Say, Chico, you like that house of yours, don't you? How many bedrooms have you got? Bedrooms, let me see. Uh... Oh, we gotta know bedrooms. No bedrooms. What do you sleep in at night? And on my night sight. <laughs> Some joke, eh, boy? <laughs> yeah, I think it's my turn to stand back here and here. Say, uh, <laughs> have you got any bathtubs in the house? Well, I tell you, we got a new plan. We got a shower right over the bed. Shower right over the bed? Mm-hmm. All we got to do in the morning is to turn the water on, and then we don't get wet. <laughs> well, why don't you get wet? We don't sleep in the bed. <laughs> Look, Chico, if you don't sleep in the bed, where do you sleep? In the park. <laughs> yeah, but if you sleep in the park, well, what do you need the house for? Well, we got to have it someplace to keep the bed. <laughs> I don't know, but that sounds kind of stupid. Yeah, I got it that from my uncle. He was a kind of stupid too. Way over like this. <laughs> I get it, I get it, Chico. Well, it's so long, Bob. <laughs> I got to go now. I'm just itching to go home. Now, wait a minute, Chico. You got to play the piano. All right, so where was I? You were just itching. Okay, we start from scratch. <laughs> Wait, they're taking my coat off. All right, say that's a nice coat, but why do you wear it inside out like that? The other side belongs to Groucho. He's wearing it. <laughs> I wish I was with him. Ladies and gentlemen, Chico Marx will now play his own arrangement of an original composition based on the second Hungarian Rhapsody by Franz Liszt. Ticket for the Rose Bowl the football game? For the Rose Bowl? I'll say how much? Well, for you, five dollars. Five dollars? Five dollars. Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, here's your five dollars. Okay, here's your piece. Yeah. <laughs> a piece? Wait a minute. How about the rest of the ticket? Oh, that's no good. I can't make a much profit selling a whole ticket. <laughs> well, you only gave me the top part of the ticket. That's all right. You only sit on the top part of the seat. <laughs> got to tell you. You know, you got to go to see for that football game right in the middle. In the middle? Uh-huh. Yeah, right behind the middle of the scoreboard. <laughs> behind the scoreboard? But how do I see the game from there? Well, I tell you. I sell you a nice brace in the bit. Then you'll make a nicer hole for yourself. I'm in the hole now. How much does that cost? $4.25. 
$4.25 for a brace and bit? Yeah, $4 for the brace and two bits for the bit. Yeah. <laughs> I wish Groucho was here to give me an answer for that one. I miss him more than you do. Anybody can drop a script. Go ahead. It's all right. I know, but I saw those jokes before. <laughs> You'll see him again, too. <laughs> hey, Bob. What's that? I'm going to do you a real big favor. Oh, don't go home so early, Chico. <laughs> no, I'm going to let you have a pair of field glasses for the game. Well, Chico, I'm not so sure I can afford it. How much are you going to let me have them for? Very cheap. Only 25 cents. Well, that's reasonable enough. Now, how about some lenses for the glasses? $50. <laughs> Look, Chico, how much would you charge me if I don't go to the game? Well, what seat are you not going to sit in? <laughs> how about not sitting on the 50-yard line? That's no good. There are too many people not sitting there now. You'd be in the way. <laughs> Bob, we got some more jokes. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we go again. What is it now? She goes, I got a something else you need very badly at the game. What is it, a radio? No, it's a map. Shows you how to get to go out, go out for the game. Yeah, that's a good idea, Chico. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it's a little late to put on your glasses. Look. <laughs> Chico, it's, <laughs> it's pretty crowded on New Year's Day. Let's take a look at that map. Here you are. Now look. You take a number 66, and you go out about a four miles. Uh-huh. That brings you to uh, 33. Yeah. Now you go out of 33 about two miles. Now 66 and a 33, that makes a 99. Now you're on the right road. <laughs> now you take a 99 for 280 miles, and that brings you to the Grand Canyon. Oh, boy, that's a beauty. <laughs> hey, that gives me an idea, Chico. I've never been there, and I'll need a vacation about New Year's. Is there any fishing? Sure, fishing and hunting. You want to buy a license? <laughs> I was afraid of that. Wait till I go home and sell my annuity. Say, <laughs> maybe you'd like to have buy these football tickets back. No, thanks. I'll let you have them for $3 a piece. No, thank you. Oh, all right. You can have them for nothing. I won't need them now. No, I don't want them. What's the matter? Don't you want to see the game? I saw the game. California won 13 to nothing. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's the score of last year's game. That's all right. You got a last year's ticket. Yeah. <laughs> Sings that beautiful number by Larry Clinton, My Reverie, based on a theme by Claude Debussy. Okay, Skinny, take it. <laughs> 
just a little sad? Well, then why not decide to swing over to Pepsodent Tooth Powder containing Irium? Pepsodent, and only Pepsodent of all tooth powders, contains Irium, the new cleansing agent. And Irium is the remarkable discovery that helps Pepsodent remove stubborn surface stains from your teeth. At least twice a day, night and morning, every day of your life, use Pepsodent Tooth Powder and you'll be rewarded. It won't be long before you say you never dreamed your teeth could sparkle so. And you never knew your mouth could feel so fresh, so clean as it does when Pepsodent Tooth Powder Containing Irium is always on the job. Best of all, Pepsodent Powder Containing Irium is safe in its action on teeth because it contains no grit, no drugs, no bleach. So if you want these effective cleansing results, try Pepsodent Tooth Powder with Irium. Although it's made him dizzy, that old bush leaguer Bob Hope is going around in circles to give you his version of Stop Beating Round the Mulberry Bush. All right, circulate, Bob. Hey, Bill. Yes, yes, Bob. I'm in trouble. I got a summons for $50,000. You did? What's the matter? Well, look, last week yeah. I called up my girl and I told her to stop beating around the mulberry bush and to come right out and tell me she loves me. Yeah? I asked her to marry me and she accepted. Well, I don't see any breach of promise there. Yeah, but I had the wrong number. <laughs> oh, boy, this is serious, Bob. What you need is a good lawyer. What I need is $50,000. 
Listen, I, I know just the man for you. Oh, one thing, is he good? I is he good? Why, he got my sentence cut down from 90 to 60 days. Really? Gee, for having one headlight out, too. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. If you ever go through a red light, let me know and I'll give you a farewell party. Come on, Bob, let's go. Well, here it is, Bob. Law offices of Cohen, Goldfarb, Cohen, and O'Cavity. How did, how did Old Cavity get in there? He put up the money. <laughs> Let's go in. Hey, gosh, it's dark in here. Oh, pardon me. That's all right. I'm only the desk. <laughs> I wish they'd turn the lights on. We never do that during lunch hour. Why not? The bosses get jealous when they see me eat. <laughs> Hello, lost is a CGC and okay. A divorce? What time would you like, Reno, Mexico, or radio? What's a radio divorce? When you get married again, we guarantee you a spot on the Eddie Cantor program. <laughs> Goodbye. Say, look, miss, my friend Bob Hope wants to hire a good lawyer. Well, you better try someone else. The last case we need defended was Paul Revere for parking his plug in front of a plug. Ah, <laughs> uh, a case, a case. Come right in. Have a seat. Have a cigar. Have an accident? Are you attorney O'Cavity? Yes, and you can't lose. It's an open and shut case. You were home alone that night reading a book. Uh -huh. Now I'll call Central Casting and get two witnesses who were with you. <laughs> Very nice, but I have a breach of promise suit on my hand. Breach of promise? She can't do that to you. Promising to marry you? Breaking your heart? Leaving you crushed and broken like a second-hand Dixie cup? We'll sue for $20,000. <laughs> That's well, but there's just one catch. What's that? She's suing me for 50000 Oh, lucky me. <laughs> we'll make a settlement. Let's say 25000 for her and 25000 for me. Uh, wait a minute. Where will I get the money? Haven't you entered the movie quiz? <laughs> hey, what a lawyer. He probably went through law school on a student tour. <laughs> oh, 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 pardon me. There goes another ambulance. This trial. Hold on to the customer while I do a little road work. Hey, don't tell me attorney O'Cavity is an ambulance chaser. Mister, he's been chasing ambulances so long, he has roller skates on his briefcase. <laughs> oh, darn those ambulance drivers. Put grease on the running board again. <laughs> hey, uh, what were you saying before they rang for me? I said I was being sued. Oh, that's nothing, so Sally ran. Yeah, but she'll probably wiggle out of it. Hey, how about making out your will? Only $25 extra. Uh oh, 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 there it goes again. Wait a minute, I'm going with you this time. Okay, hang on. We'll wrap off the courthouse. Hey. Hey, boy, this is a busy court. Listen to the hustle and bustle. Hello, hustle. Hello, bustle. <laughs> Session, the court of sessions is in session, and I do mean session. Yeah, man. <laughs> uh, there's the girl right over there, Susie Sapina. We all call her Sweet Sue. Uh, hello, Sue. Hello, Cavity. Well, here we are again. Here you are, Jenny, your cracker crack, popcorn, alibi, sail bonds, and a pussy pussy ice cream. <laughs> Who's that? Uh, that's the girl's lawyer, Ravelli. Hey, boss, do you call me? Yeah, I want to make a deal with you. That's fine. How about draw poker? Here's your card. My card? I got a five bases. I think I'll open. What do you got? I got a headache. <laughs> Rebelli, if you were my lawyer, I'd say you were crazy. Yes, As a matter of fact, if you were my lawyer, I'd say I was crazy. Sounds, sounds just like Groucho. No? No. <laughs> Tell me, why is your client suing me for breach of promise? 
I'm running a special on the breach of promise this week. Next week, a habeas corpus with green flowers. With green flowers? Yeah, habeas Irish rose. Some sort, right? <laughs> no. No. I object. <laughs> so I read anybody's lines. What are you... <laughs> What do you and I object? What, what are you objecting for? The trial uh, hasn't started. Well, I'm just warming up. Order <laughs> in the court. Order. The judge is about to appear. Greetings, Kate. Let's arbitrate. <laughs> Hello, Sue. How are you? Hello, Judge. Well, where were you on the night of October 25th? At home. You should have been with us. What a brawl. <laughs> is the jury present? Hello, Judge. Sue, you remember the boys? Sure. Hiya, fellas. Hello, Sue. What's new? <laughs> I'll give three to one. I lose this case. <laughs> That's no good. You can get 12 to one from the jury. <laughs> Judge Colonna, I think there's 30 days. <laughs> but Judge, that isn't 60 days. Wait a minute. You can't give me 60 days. Ah, yes, Maeve. My time is your time. <laughs> Bring the defendant and the plaintiff to the bar. Your grandma tells the truth, all through that, and see your dentist twice a year. <laughs> I do. I do. I now pronounce you man and wife. <laughs> I object. You're here to dispense justice. Very well. Justice will be dispensed with. <laughs> Continue with the case. It's your shot, Mr. Ravelli. <laughs> okay, I take to the witness. Hey, Hope, where were you on the night of February the 30th? There wasn't any night of February the 30th. Oh, so you stole that too, huh? I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not exactly proud of you either, Rosalie. I object. Objection overruled. All right, I object again. Objection overruled. That's fine. Now I got a pair of overrules. <laughs> judge, I'm getting sick and tired of this case. Yeah, come on, Judge. Don't beat around the mulberry bush and settle this case once and for me. Silence. I have reached a decision. <gasps> I'm afraid to listen. What kind of a trial is this, anyway? Am I going to get justice? Ah, justice. Justice, a famous justice once said. Who? Who? Oh, there she goes again. Quick, where's my briefcase? Hey, that's for my case. Just a minute, Chase. What about my case? And what about my case? I object. You can't object. You're the judge. Objection overruled. I'm throwing this case right out of court. <laughs> What happened, Judge? I forgot to let go of the case. for next week. Oh, well, next week we're really going to town, Bill. We have that man with us. Yeah, that man? That man, Groucho Marx. He's coming over and explaining the whole thing. Then we'll have our regular cast, Kenny Ennis' band, Six Hits and a Miss, Jerry Colonna, Bill Goodwin, and Bob Hope. Thank you. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Until next Tuesday night at the same time, the President Company bids you good night. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, we wrap up the week with Mr. District Attorney, followed by The Fred Allen Show. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for A Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. Stay tuned for Ziggy and Stardust, next on Zoomer Radio. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. <laughs>
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.